Thank you for tuning in to the Life After GDPR podcast, where we discuss digital marketing in a post-GDPR world. I'm your host, Rick Dronkers, and in today's episode, I get to interview Simo Ahava, founder of the tag manager blog simoahava.com and the digital learning community on technical marketing called teamsimmer.com. We'll cover topics like the difference between server-side and client-side tag manager, why server-side tag manager is essential for GDPR compliance, Google's consent mode, and why it might not solve what we would want it to solve, Simo's look at the current situation with Google Analytics in Europe, why now might be the best time to shop around for alternative analytics solutions, and much more. Let's dive in. So, Mr. Simo Ava, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, thank you, thank you. If you talk to your family, how, how do you explain what you do for a living? Um, I, I think I, I cop out by saying that I'm an entrepreneur and let them fill the gaps. Um, yeah, I, I think my family mostly, well, I think my parents might still remember me working on search engine optimization because that was a, a sidestep I took, an unfortunate detour I took when I, when I entered digital marketing. But um, I think like digital analyst, web analyst is still top of mind for many, even though I've personally tried to shed that for a long time because I, I consider myself to be a developer first for so long. And now even more, I, I consider myself to be a coach or a teacher even more than that. But yeah, I think entrepreneurs is what I, what I would use and just let people figure out what that, whatever that means. I, you know, I, I really hate job titles. I really hate, um, categorizing people by their, by their expertise. I think it's super limiting. So I've, I've just been trying to figure out what is the most generic thing I can think of, which, and I, I'm just hogging the microphone here because this is a funny anecdote. I, when I entered my, my last employer that I had before going solo a couple of years ago, uh, I got to choose my own title, which I loved it because, and actually that company that was Reactor, an amazing Finnish technology company, they, they cared about as much as about job titles as I did. But anyway, they, they let me choose a title and I chose like, what could be the most vague title in my industry. And so I chose three words that mean absolutely nothing together. And I became a senior data advocate. So that's what I'm now. I'm senior data advocate in my business cards, which means absolutely nothing, but it sounds like super, super impressive and imposing. So yeah. Okay. I'm, I'm a senior data advocate now that you asked what I do for a living. Besides being a senior data advocate, I think you're also the author of the unofficial Google Tag Manager documentation online. That might be the place where people recognize your name from if they don't know you already. Yeah. How many years has it been since you've been publishing uh, articles on Tag Manager now? Uh, it's been nine years now, and, and next year, next year's May is the anniversary, ten-year anniversary of my first article, which was uh, like a really crappy SEO post, actually. Um, and the first, maybe first five months of my blog is a re it was a really mediocre search engine optimization blog. But then I um, started blogging about Tag Management, and it really, really took off. And 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 you know, the blog has been. Yeah, it's, it's been a passion project. I, I'm super proud of it for many reasons, not just because I've been consistently able to churn content, um, because I'm, I'm not the most, you know, you know, I, I have maybe three years of interest for any given topic. In three years, I grow tired of it and move to something else. But blogging has stayed very consistent and, and there actually hasn't been a single month over the last nine years that I haven't published at least one article. And, you know, there's no advertising. I, I do very little promotion there. So I'm very proud of the independence I've had with it. Um, and the blog has been going up and down. It, it started as a, as a, like a tag management. This is how you do GTM. This is how you do web development work. Then I shifted gears a bit and moved more towards like organization processes and try to be more of a, because that's a super interesting topic, like how to build data organizations. And now over the last, last two years or so, it's been almost solely focused on server side. Um, server-side technologies, not just server-side tagging, but also cloud, cloud as a, as a concept in general. And, um, and that's been, so it's, it's been fun that I have full creative control over the content and, um, and it's, it's been very enjoyable and I'm, I'm kind of happy that I'm known for it, but it's definitely not, it's not when I, when I, when I leave this world, it's not going to be what I'm going to etch on my gravestone. Like my blog URL won't be there. It's not that important. I, I think somebody will back it up and keep it. Yeah, hopefully. <laughs> Maybe my um, son will pick it up after me. <laughs> yeah, that would be great. So yeah. yeah, like you mentioned, tech management, that's probably the thing that most people would know yeah. you for if they stumbled across an article of you. Yeah. Um, 
tag management, server-side tag manager. Those are, those are the main topics that I think we will be discussing sure. today as well. There's a lot of pressure on collecting data right now. There's pressure for, from two angles. One is, one is the legislative angle, the GDPR. And then on the other end, we have browser uh, technologies like Apple's intelligent tracking prevention. Let's just take a, take an open-ended uh, question and, and let's ask you like, how do you see the future of your beloved tool tag manager when it comes to these two influences? Yeah, that's a, yeah, that's a super interesting question. Um, partly because it, it sort of asks the wrong thing, but, but it, but it leads to a very interesting discussion. Um, when we talk about technology stacks, um, they, they don't really solve for these fundamental things that that privacy legislation or data protection legislation tries to address. And even the kind of browser technologies, the tracking protections, even those are kind of outside the sphere of what I consider tech management to be. Uh, but before I go to that, I just kind of, I want to focus on people. People tend to have this singular idea about tools and solutions as them in themselves bringing absolution. Like let's install a server-side tag manager and we're good. You know, or let's, let's move to away from Google cloud to an EU cloud and we're good. As if the technological choice actually does anything because it doesn't, it just proves, it just gives you a different type of framework for, ad, for addressing these problems. So what I think actually tag management really does um, and, and as a side effect kind of also addresses these, these things is that it brings control. Um, it gives various degrees of control to the company running the tag management system. So that would be the website, you know, that you visit or the app that your, your users use. And, and this idea of control is, is absolutely imperative in this world where we try to figure out what is best for our users, like what is best for their data protection and data security rights. Um, what is best for preventing vendors for doing unruly cross-site tracking. And what is best for us as a company to stay compliant with laws and to understand these tracking protection technologies as, as well we can um, so that we still get data that can still be useful. And tag management, in my view, is, is just absolutely critical here. Um, if, we, if we go back some years, if we go to a pre-GDPR time, for example, tag management was still about control. It was about giving marketing departments more control over the deployment and the implementation of, of marketing tags, analytics tags, advertising tags. Um, it didn't address the legislative problems. It didn't address the technological problems, but it did give control. And I think what we're seeing more and more these days is that we, we have more control with their tools. Downside of control is that control, again, itself doesn't carry um, positive or negative connotations. It depends what the company that has the control does with that control. So the very same tools that we can use in, you know, in tag management or server-side tagging, the very same tools we can use to actually improve data protection, improve data security, the very same tools can be used to kind of subvert those as well. And they can be used to kind of do nastier stuff than anything you could do without a tag manager or with or purely in the client side. So I think this, this idea of control is, is central and well, I'm biased saying this, but I do think that a tag manager for a team working, for a company working with marketing vendors and analytics vendors, this idea of control is, is just so imperative to get right. Yeah. So in a way you could actually state that both GDPR and on the other side, also the browser techniques are actually making tag manager more relevant than before. Like I think, I think so. Of control. I, I think so. Um. I mean, we, we can split those into two. So, so the, the, and we could talk about GDPR definitely. I mean, as a, as a, at this moment, we can, we can use it as a shorthand for all the data protection legislation in the world, because much of it is modeled after GDPR. And of course, in the EU, there are other like frameworks and, and directives and regulations around data protection than just GDPR. But the, but this idea of personal data is of course, very, very fundamental. And I think that, um, just being able to this, this ever shifting idea of what is personal data and, and the vagueness of how it's reported in the legal systems and the law and the law text is an incentive for companies to add a buffer, you know, between the user and the vendor, because I don't think the vendors always have the best interests of the consumer at their heart, <laughs> shocking reveal, but it's 
So, so there needs to be a, a buffer and that buffer needs to be a company that is working with a clear conscience and working with a compliant um, architecture and, and working with the best interests of the user at hand. And of course, that type of company doesn't exist because companies have, um, you know, incentives and they have, um, you know, vested interests as well. But working with a tool that kind of collects um, all the marketing, all the analytics, all the advertising, all of these kind of legitimate interests slash constant based slash sometimes con contract based um, legal basis for data, personal data collection, collects them under one framework, one solution, one platform, um, again, as a, as a measure of control, that's super important. Um, but like I said before, you, you, you can use the same technology just to even nastier stuff. You, ha you have even more tools at your hand to abuse the user's trust. And then about this, like tracking protection um, is, is a tough thing to address because of course, browsers do it in many different ways. But what has been pretty central to, um, you know, Apple's rhetoric and, and even Brave's rhetoric, although Brave is like really aggressive with these things, is that they, they, they want to get rid of cross-site tracking. They want to get rid of vendors having a field day in the user's browser. That's the big problem. You know, when, when you visit a site that loads a Facebook pixel, it downloads a, a big JavaScript library from Facebook servers. And that JavaScript library basically has full privilege to, to do whatever it likes on the site. So Facebook can grab your cookies. It can grab whatever it sees on the screen. It can grab your email address from your form fields or, you know, whatever it likes to do. And so these technologies are trying to prevent this type of vendor access. And while tag management doesn't really prevent that, it just, it's just another way of deploying those scripts. Um, it does give you more controls for, um, you know, um, you know, conditionally blocking them rather than going through the developers and having to explain to them how all this works. If you go to server side, you of course have a million additional options, but tag management in itself doesn't necessarily address this problem because you still need to add Facebook tracking on the page, but it does give you more options for detecting, you know, which browser is the user using. If they're using Safari, okay, you'll know that you might need to do something different with the cookies. If they're using Brave, you'll know that they'll be blocking it most likely, so you need to do something else. So again, it's it's about control and and, and how you use those toggles and little triggers to to control your data flows. One of one of the the distinctions you already made is uh, is the difference between uh, client side tag manager and server side tag manager. Yeah. So for the people listening who are not aware, how, what, what would be your simple explanation of, of these two concepts and how they differ? Uh, yeah, I think the the best way to describe it is to use the buffer analogy again. So a, a client side tag manager is a way to deploy vendor scripts in the browser. So it's, it's, a, it's a handy way of adding the Facebook pixel, of adding the Google Analytics tracking library directly in the browser, and then the browser sends that data to the vendors. And it comes with all the baggage of, of you know, a browser communicating directly with the vendors. And I used the example of the Facebook JavaScript just a while ago. Whereas server-side tagging adds, uh, moves this, you know, this vendor tag, vendor data, data dispatch logic to the server. So it's, it's a buffer between the user and the vendor where the company running the server-side tagging system can you know, validate those data flows. They can remove personal data. They can add additional conditions, additional triggers, additional blockers, additional data enrichment before the data is shipped to the vendors. So it does the same thing. It's still a handy way to deploy tracking and, and analytics and, and advertising scripts. But instead of burdening the user's browser and introducing potential data security problems there, the uh, the logic is moved to the server, um, out of the sight of the of the browser and out of the reach of the browser, um, in order to kind of, you know, preserve bandwidth, because now the user's browser no longer has to do all the work of sending the information to the vendors, um, added additional data security layers because, uh, um, let's say a, a random example that the Facebook content distribution network is, is taken over by a malicious attacker, then, you know, if you try to load the Facebook script directly in the browser, you might be loading some uh, malware instead. But because you're no longer loading any Facebook data in the browser, you're kind of protecting the user, user with that. So it, it just moves the, it moves, it adds an additional step to the upstream um, data flow, the data processing um, before the vendors receive the data. So it adds a layer of complexity, you could say, but at the same time, it also adds a layer of even more granular control. I like to think so. The, 
the benefit of moving to the server is definitely that you have like the full power and scale of, of whatever the server stack you're using. And if you're using cloud, like Google Cloud or AWS or Azure, you know, you have an amazing am amount of, of scale. You could, you could just throw virtual machines at your server and have it do stuff at a super low latency. So you can do really complicated enrichment jobs, you know, in, instead of having the user's browser figure out all the different parts of a complicated uh, analytics setup, like how do I pull in all the e-commerce data? How do I pull in all the user data? How do I correlate all the session data? All you need, like theoretically, all you would need is some identifier with the user. And then you use that identifier server side to enrich the data with all the metadata from using different APIs and different, different um, additional data sources. So you, ha you have this opportunity of, of really building a data pipeline as a, 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 with server-side tagging. Um, and as such, it gives you just so much more power. And, and, and the granularity is an interesting point because granularity is, is a very technical concept and it really depends on how the server-side tagging system or the server-side stack, uh, what type of tools it offers. Because it is essentially a sandbox. With Google Tag Manager, it's a sandbox built by Google. So you're, you're kind of, you know, if, if you want to do um, data parsing, like block all instances of personally identifiable information from those requests. You need a tool to do that. And we don't necessarily have that tool yet in server-side tag manager. So where uh, granularity is definitely something that I believe will only improve, like you will have even more controls to um, choose what the vendors receive. Uh, but that is really just a feature roadmap question rather than what server-side gives by default. And do you think that's a matter of third-party developers looking into creating their own custom uh, solutions? Or do you think also Google will play a role in that and, uh, and provide native features? I, well, I mean, if, if third-party developers want to build something on server-side Google Tag Manager, for example, then, then we need Google to give us certain APIs and certain um, scripts in the sandbox for that to happen. Um, the sandbox is, is getting more and more... Um, feature rich by the day. So it's, it's good to know that there are certain things coming down the line. Service-side, like service-side tag manager is kind of special because it, it runs on this, on the company's servers. You know, it's, it's 100% owned by the company. The only reason it would communicate with Google servers at any time is to fetch the actual code that runs the tag manager, but it doesn't, it doesn't phone home. You know, it doesn't tell Google what's happening unless you explicitly said it to do that. So it really is, uh, and this is kind of fascinating coming from Google, it really is something that's running on your own server and you can claim ownership of it. So in that way, um, you know, I, I, I kind of wish that we would have more controls uh, over the data. And at the same time, I do wish that Google doesn't focus too much on native solutions because native solutions tend to become black boxes in themselves. So, you know, you have a, a Google's built-in client or built-in tag, and your Google is saying, please use this, but you have no idea what it does because it's not exposed, it's not open-sourced, whereas all the community templates are open-sourced. So there's an incentive for me to instead use the community stuff if I want to know exactly what's happening. But at the same time, the good, good thing about working on the cloud and working with your own server is that it's pretty easy to detect the outgoing data streams as well. So if, you know, if, I'm 100% sure that Google isn't doing anything nasty here, but if they were to suddenly, you know, start pinging their servers arbitrarily to collect personal data beyond their, um, beyond their uh, purpose, then I would see it because I own the server. I, I, can, I can add additional proxies. I can add additional monitors. I can, I can call Google out that, hey, by the way, it looks like you're doing some nasty stuff here. Whereas with a client-side tag manager or or Google Analytics, we have no idea what happens once those yeah. personal data hits the Google servers or, or those user data hits the Google servers. That ties in well with the challenge that, that we see from a GDPR perspective with current complaints against Google Analytics with, within Europe. So with server-side tag manager, what you're saying is because you as a company or, or a private person are actually able to fully own the server-side tag manager container and, and everything that goes on within that, you might be bypassing some of those challenges? Um, hmm, let's see. So, well, technically, yes, you have a tool to, um, 
So, so if we just, in a nutshell, the, the, the EU complaints have currently, that are currently on the table, have to do with sending personal data to uh, a region that doesn't have an adequacy decision with the, with the European Union. So it's the US has this problem of, of because it's basically a surveillance state, they have the problem that government can, can anytime request uh, the type of data that would be considered personal data in the Google Analytics data set. And we can, we can debate this till the cows come home on whether they're actually interested in it or not. But that is the truth. And that is the, that is the way these complaints are built. So now the question is, can we use server site to somehow um, make that problem disappear and keep collecting the data without having to kind of invoke Schrems to decision? And in, in, in technically, yes. Um, if, if we run the server side tag manager uh, outside uh, a U.S. company's reach. This is as, as much as I understand about the topic. So we would need to run it in a server that is fully in the European Union um, and thus should have certain protections applied to it. Even though I think that, you know, many countries, the EU are doing their own surveillance data gathering. But we could we could install it in a, in a European Union cloud. Um, and then when, the, when we collect the data to the server, we remove all aspects of personal data. We, we make sure the user's IP address is completely obfuscated. Um, if there are cookie identifiers, some people are saying that hashing it is enough and salting it. Um, so kind of unlinking the user's browser from it. I, I seriously don't think that's, that's how you should be reading the, the, the frameworks, but we could just delete the cookie identifier altogether. Uh, we could delete all transaction IDs because they're almost always personal data. Uh, event timestamps need to go because they can be correlated with server logs um, and so on. So, so it's totally doable and you can use a server-side tagging system as a buffer, but what do you end up with? You know, you end up with a pretty crap analytic system. And at that, that point, you have to consider like, why would I even send this data to GA? Like, like why do the extra, what can GA do with that data? that I couldn't do just by storing it in my own data warehouse and, and applying some reporting logic on it. So I think that while I completely understand the push for server-side and it's, it's just popping up all over the place that you know server-side is the solution here, there are two reasons I'm very skeptical about this. One is that um, I think GDPR is intentionally also vague about the concept of personal data and the identifiability of personal data. You know, and we, we all know, like if we look at it blankly, we all know that an, uh, a cookie ID that Google Analytics uses, that's not personal data. It's even though GDPR defines it as that. It's, it's a pseudonymous identifier that when linked to identifiable information, it is personal data. But if we prevent any of that identifiable information from ever reaching Google servers, then that online identifier will not be linkable to a user, to a personal, to a human being. And again, we can debate on that, but that is like from a technical point of view, an engineering point of view, that is, in my view, a very, very clear fact. But the problem is that we can't lull ourselves into thinking that, you know, okay, so we'll just prevent personal data from ever entering Google servers, because that, that's a problem. There's, there's so many ways to kind of identify uh, a human being from data. It, it doesn't require an explicit identifier. You can use it in triangulation. You can, you can look at the time of day and the region the user visited from. You can look at specific actions they do on the site. So there's always going to be some way. And I think that's when, um, you know, when talking about GDPR and privacy laws, people kind of think that, you know, if we do a bad thing, then we'll get hit with a fine. Well, yeah, but it's not just about that. It's about a continuous assessment of risk. It's not about, are we doing good or are we doing bad? It's about, you know, what is our assessment of our current state of risk? And I think that if we read what the Schrems 2 decision is, if we read the complaints by Noib, we can see that there is still a lot of risk to be uncovered. This, this, this matter is far from over. We don't know what the e-privacy regulation will finally look like if that will add additional layers. We don't know how GDPR continues to evolve in courts, in, in EU courts. We don't know how the regional legislation continues to evolve. So trying to think of like, you know, let's erase the IP address and let's hash and salt the client identifier. It might be good today, but it's going to be good in one month or two months when additional complaints are processed. That's, I think that's the problem. And I think that like, I'm super naive when it comes to these legal things, but from a, from a, from a naive person's perspective, I'm, I'm not sure if I see a way out on a technological level 
rather that, that it has to come from a legislation. It has to come from new federal laws in the U.S. It has to come from a new, you know, privacy shield between EU and the U.S. Um, I don't think that the lawmakers are going to bend and say, okay, yeah, we said that IP address is personal data, but, you know, we thought about it again. I, we don't think it is anymore. I don't think that's going to happen. I think they're just, they're just going to take more and more things that we don't consider to be personal data and, 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 and state that they actually are. So I, that, I think, is the main problem with this discussion. I, I, do abs I absolutely do think that server-side tagging gives you um, a, a refreshed opportunity for reevaluating those data streams. But at some point, you just have to start wondering. I've spent so much time trying to lobby for Google Analytics to work in the EU, and I spent so much time trying to send a payload that's not completely useless at what if I should just start looking at local opportunities instead? And, and uh, this is an amazing market opportunity. Like, who's going to be the first one to take the Urchin server and deploy it in the EU cloud and start selling it as, a, as the next Google Analytics? Like, I don't know. We already see a lot of European players recognizing this as, a, as an opportunity. So it's yeah. going to be interesting to watch over the next few years. Yeah. So if we take what you just said and turn it into something practical, what are your thoughts on conversion APIs? Right, because with the launch of server-side technology, we have seen uh, conversion APIs with, with Facebook being probably the, the, the most known example to most digital marketers out there um, as like the silver bullet, right? That has been pushed by, especially by, by advertising professionals for saving the data that is available within the advertising platforms. Yeah. Whether it's Facebook or it's some affiliate network, I think they're all working on a version of their conversion yeah. API. Yeah, and, and Google just... Uh, released and has conversions for for server-side tagging as well. So, uh, well, uh, I mean, obviously it doesn't do anything for GDPR because you're still collecting personal data. And now, now you're actually collecting very, very uh, unambiguous personal data. You're actually sending email addresses. You're sending first name, last name combinations. You're selling, sending phone numbers. And yes, you're hashing them. But now let's let's remember that hashing is just a veneer when it comes to privacy. It has absolutely no privacy benefits um, other than if people are somehow tapping into those data streams and kind of trying to, you know, listen in. But if you send a hashed email address to Facebook or Google, they already have, you know, every single email address in the world. They can just hash those and see which one matches. So hashing is not, so it doesn't solve for GDPR uh, at all, in my view. What it does solve for is the loss and degradation of third-party cookies. And this is kind of where tracking protections come into play with third-party cookies, Facebook and Google can continue tracking logged-in users across the web. Like that's the purpose. That's how they link um, a user's visits to a website and even their individual actions on a website to the actual person because they have the same cookie ID when they visit, you know, uh, data2value.nl and when they visit facebook.com. So they can see that, okay, this person, Rick Drunkers uh, from our Facebook database, database just visited this site. Um, but now the third-party cookies are, are deprecated and every single browser is committed to, committed to deprecating them, at least all the major browsers, even Google. These companies need to come up with an alternative. And so what's the alternative to having uh, an, uh, an identifier that links the per logged-in user um, to their visits on the site? Well, the solution is some other identifier that isn't just a cryptic random string stored in a cookie, but actually something tangible that the user has freely and willingly given to the platform. And an email address is just a great example of that. Now, the problem is that when you collect a user's email address, it's like giving the keys to the kingdom to the vendor. You're, they don't have to jump through any hoops at that point trying to figure out who this person is. They don't have to do uh, behind the scenes, data, you know, cookie syncing or or behind the scenes deals with their competitors trying to build those map tables. They can just directly look at, hey, this email address I have in my database. So now I know who it is. And if they don't have the email, then they'll pay some money to get even more emails from global databases and they'll be able to. So that that's, uh, um, I, I completely understand why these APIs exist. And I do appreciate that they give you much more control um, from the site's perspective over what the vendor receives. I can decide exactly what they'll receive. But the unfortunate fact is that they use these, uh, they use personal data as the key. There's no online identifiers anymore, even though technically some of these platforms could use those as well. 
And sometimes they use these um, click IDs, which are uh, frustratingly poorly documented, and we have no idea, but we can only expect or assume that they contain hashed personal data as well. So while you know, I, I understand the effort, and I think it's, a, it's an interesting solution to the deprecation of third-party cookies, but a hashed email won't get you very far for compliance. And I'm a bit worried that these vendors are so aggressively pushing these conversion APIs and not explaining that this doesn't actually absolve you of your legal compliance duties. You, you still are obligated to have a legal basis for personal data collection. And, and you know, the, we as a vendor are still obligated to respect purpose limitation and, and serve data requests and data removal requests. So I don't know. It's a it's 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 kind of tearing me apart. Yeah, I, I can't agree more, especially the part that, that I think we're giving a lot of companies a very powerful tool of which they might not be fully aware of what the implications might be, especially from like a, a privacy perspective and from a legislative perspective. Like, yeah. Yeah. And, and it, it doesn't help the vendors are just super aggressive with this. And, and in a similar way, I think the community and you know, I'm partly to blame because I just wrote an article how to use the conversions API, but I, I do want to raise the flag that I'm still a developer at heart and I'm just super fascinated by them. I do add some caveats nowadays that by the way, I still, I do think this is kind of fishy, but it's still pretty cool. Um, <laughs> but from, a, you know, the, the vendors are being very aggressive with this and it's, it's a similar how um, there's, a, there's a lot of push towards server-side in general, like considering server-side as a silver bullet for so many things and but the main message always seems to be, you know, company, are you afraid of losing all your data, either because of WebKit or because of GDPR? Well, jump to server-side and you'll get your data back. And I think that's just, uh, that just completely misunderstands why we have this legislation and why we have these technologies. These GDPR isn't there to protect the company's interests and to give them give them more secure data and and I, ITP and and Brave aren't there to uh, you know give the company additional tools. They're they're always solely focused on the data subject. And if we could you know if we could change that rhetoric from go to server side to get more data, if we could change that to take a look at server side because it actually gives you more controls to protect your visitors' data and to, and to do right by them, I think that would be a more, I think that would be a fair, more fair message. It just wouldn't be as sexy. You know, it, it wouldn't be as tantalizing for companies because what do they care about their users? They haven't cared about them until now and why should they care about them in the future? I would actually go as far as, I think I wrote a blog post actually titled this, like you need server-side tag manager in order to be fully compliant, because I think you actually need that type of technology to work with a lot of tools and be able to limit the data you send to those tools. So yeah. server-side tag manager is a, is essential from that point of view, but that's definitely not the, the way the marketing is being done right now. So I, I want to zoom back on, on something you just said, you mentioned Google's consent mode. A lot of people have the hope of a something called Google consent mode, right? That, that will make uh, their life easy and make everything GDPR compliant. And what are your thoughts? Like maybe let's start with what is consent mode and what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so Google's consent mode is a uh, client-side solution, uh, which also actually have server-side implications now as well, but it's, it's, a, it's a solution to prevent Google scripts running in the browser from accessing um, uh, cookie storage. That's, that's the long and short of it. There are some additional um, effects when it comes to uh, advertising pings as well in that they don't use third-party cookies or such. So constant mode has me kind of torn because again, from an engineering point of view, it's exactly what I would do um, in, in light of, of, of content in the, in the European Union. And as such, it doesn't, I don't think it solves at all for GDPR. I think GDPR isn't relevant when we talk about constant mode. Because constant mode prevents access to cookie storage, it's mainly designed to address a very narrow interpretation of e-privacy directive in the EU and also similar efforts in California and elsewhere. In that it just, it just prevents Google from accessing cookie storage. And as such, it's not enough for GDPR compliance in any way because you can still send personal data and you're still sending it if you're, you know, sending your IP address or if you're sending transaction IDs or anything else or user IDs or anything else. It doesn't kind of solve for that at all. 
um, it's it's I don't think it's actually enough for e-privacy either because for example in Finland, RDPA has interpreted e-privacy in a very very strict way, saying that even like analytics pings, whether or not they use storage or not, should be considered the same as accessing cookie storage. So we're not allowed to even send analytics pings without um, uh, consent from the user. And the the other problem with consent, so so the way the consent mode works is that if you don't give consent, if you tell Google Scripts that we don't have consent for analytic storage, it will still con- collect that data, but it will not access any of the identifiers you have in your cookie. So it won't be able to tie that data to a user. Um, and that's that's the way it works. So it collects this kind of userless, cookie-less data. Now, the problem is that it collects the data. And as such, it carries enormous risks of collecting personal data um, and thus violating GDPR because you've been lulled into thinking that, hey, I'm using consent mode, so I'm fine, even though the user didn't actually give their consent. So I'm like, in a, in a kind of first responder level, I'm, I'm worried about it actually collecting data even when you haven't given consent, even though from a technical, like purely, like if you read the law to the letter, you, you understand that that's actually, that should be fine to satisfy e-privacy because it's not accessing that first party storage. But it's still kind of worrying. And it gets more worrying when you see what happens to the data because it's actually collected to a black box somewhere. We have no idea where that data is. It's not surfaced in reports. I only today noticed that it's actually now exported to BigQuery. So you do have the um, storage denied data in, in BigQuery as raw data now from your GA4 export. But still, it's it's stored somewhere in Google servers where it's then used for machine learning to uh, train a machine learning data set and then model back into behavior data at some point. We don't know when. But the problem is that technically it's possible to keep collecting personal data, but now instead of being able to access it to serve data, re- data access requests and data removal requests, we have no idea where that data is. There's no way for us to ask Google, hey, do you have... This email address um, had some data associated in my consent mode hits. Do can I please see them now? Oh, no, <laughs> because it's in a black box. So that it actually introduces a, a, an additional problem because we're again unaware of what is happening on Google side of things. Yeah, yeah. That that and and then also this this the main just problem of consent in general and and the the. Uh, <laughs> Consent isn't a problem. Consent is very important, but the problem of using consent for data collection in general is that it kind of rolls, it rolls a lot of, lot of responsibility on the user to make a choice. And, and the user is just not informed enough about these things um, to make an make a enlightened choice. They have no idea what happens to the data. And, and the very idea that even if you don't consent to something, Google doesn't, you know, Google doesn't take a stance on what you're consenting to. Consent mode is just a f- thing you flip on when you want to use send data to Google without consent, just but it doesn't say what that consent is for. Is it for e-privacy? Is it for GDPR derogations? Is it for something else? And so you know we again customers are EU companies especially are lulled into thinking that hey we have this let's just use it and we'll be compliant. And and, and I've I've seen that I'm, I'm I need, and I know it sounds like I'm stereotyping you know building stereotypes here or generalizing but I've seen that already happen and I've had many many discussions with companies that hey we we saw that Google now has constant mode and, and maybe we should use that so we don't have to worry about all these triggers and things in Google Tag Manager anymore we can just kind of use that and have the data data be collected and that's just such a that's such a just such a red light I I also kind of don't think that. You know, if you're not alarmed that one of the biggest ad tech vendors in the planet comes out with their own compliance solutions, I think you you need to take a reality check because that does sound. And I I love what Google is trying to do here. And like I said, I think that is the future of cookie-less data collection is to purge personal data from those streams, collect that information, and then use machine learning to somehow model it back into usable data. I think that's absolutely where we should be going. But I, I just don't think Google should be the company doing this because they have vested interest, because they they can they have a track record of not respecting purpose limitation, because they they still have the potential of collecting personal data when they shouldn't be doing so. But this ties in really well with another question that I wanted to ask you. So I think you and I are both used to Google. We've worked with Google tools a lot, Google Analytics, Google Tag Manager. 
But I think increasingly talking about this topic and, and, and learning about these topics, like you just mentioned, Google is uh, making money on the advertising side. And then they have these other products where I don't know if they make money on the analytics and tag manager side, but I, I definitely know they don't make as much money as they do on the advertising side. That's for sure. So their, their interests are likely always going to be on the advertising side, which makes it, I think a little bit hard for us to keep using these tools. So what are your thoughts on like the future of our beloved Google Analytics and Google Tag Manager, if you look at it through that lens? Well, well Tag Manager, I think is, is quote unquote safe because Tag Manager itself isn't a data collection system. Like it doesn't process data apart, you know, it, it doesn't, except when, when you load the Tag Manager for the web, of course, it, it sends the initial ping to Google servers to load the, load the library. And as such, you could extend the Schrems 2 decision to that as well, because you're sending an IP address with the request. But I think CDNs are still, you know, uh, unaccounted for when it comes to figuring out just how far Schrems 2 goes, because that would kind of cripple the entire internet um, if you can't use any US CDNs anymore or content distribution networks. So I think, I think tag management is kind of a separate thing, um, apart from when it comes at machine for deploying advertising. And server-side tagging certainly has some Google tags and Google solutions that are, are making very difficult to, you know, have full control. You know, the, the built-in Google ads tags in server-side do additional round trips to the browser to collect third-party cookie information on the double-click servers and so on. So there's, there's some fishy stuff going on, but luckily you have, you have the option of not using those tags. Like the, the tag manager itself is, is just a, it's just a tabula rasa. It's just a, a blank slate for you to determine how to use. Of course, you need education and you need knowledge to use it. So let's, let's, I, I, I still, maybe I'm naive again, but I, I want to exclude that from this conversation because I absolutely believe that it's still a solid tool. Now, Google Analytics, on the other hand, um, I'm kind of hoping that some of this will blow over and people would, will, will realize, especially like, um, the people processing Noib's complaints and maybe Noib as well, and maybe lawmakers in the EU um, will realize that maybe this is an overreaction um, using Google Analytics as the scapegoat. Um, I kind of understand why Google Analytics is the scapegoat. One of the reasons is that nobody's going to miss it when it's made illegal, except those <laughs> who use it, but the, but the consumers won't compared to that if, if Netflix or, or, um, you know, or, or Spotify were to become illegal, people would, you know, tear down privacy laws because they took over their shiny toys. Um, I am anxiously, like, not anxiously, I'm, I'm very interested in seeing how Google respond to this because I think they've said that they're going to come out with more controls to make GA Schrems 2 compliant. I just don't really see how that's going to happen with the current architecture. There have been some ideas put forth but I think the risk remains that as long as Google Analytics is part of Google um, and Google LLC, and as long as Google has a very unclear and vague integration between analytics and ads, um, I think this, this is going to be a problem. And so I, while Google Analytics is the de facto analytics tool, um, let me put it from a cynical point of view. If there ever was a time to shop around, it's right now because of, of these Austrian, of the decision in Austria and, and France and in other uh, EU regions, and because Google Analytics 4 rollout wasn't maybe the, the best <laughs> rollout in the history of, of analytics products. So if there ever was a time to shop around, it's right now. And there are some really cool alternatives. Um, I always love to talk about snowplow uh because it's from a data engineering point of view it's it's the just the best thing because you can build it to your liking um there are uh plenty of solutions in the U eu that um, for example by the canil the the french dpa or the french authority has has a list of tools that have exemptions for or can can use like legitimate interest as the legal basis and you know i've, I've used some of them i'm not it's very difficult coming from a GA world to adapt to some other tool. And I, let's say I'm not using them now. So that should tell you just how much I think they are better or worse. But I think that this is just a decision that companies need to make. Um, I do think that it's people should still for now, at least cool it down a bit and, and just wait for things to settle, wait for how, how Google will, will respond, wait to see if there's going to be any movement 
in, in legislation in the U.S., un highly unlikely with a divided political base. But kind of wait and see. And, and, and because after all, these complaints are targeted at specific websites in specific regions. They, they're not, they don't instantly become like the European Union has now banned Google Analytics. That's not how, you, how it works. But it certainly does set things in motion that might, might lead to, towards something like that. But I do, I do really hope that there's some sympathy, especially in the EU, um, like lawmakers and, and, and Noib and, and other associates work. I, th I hope there would be some sympathy towards the fact that GA can be used in a privacy compliant way and, and, and is used when not integrated with, with ad systems and, and, and configured to not process IP addresses or write them to the disk. And um, I, I, I hope there's a comp compromise in sight because it is such a valuable tool for so many. And I, I personally have been using it um, and, and I've, I've yet to find something that ticks all the boxes and, and is as an easy um, adoption for, for companies working digital marketing, especially. Personal nostalgia aside, I think a lot of businesses get a lot of value from analytics in general. And I think Google has, has played their cards well, making it free and, and, yeah. and developing a great tool, which has led to, to a huge adoption worldwide. Yeah. And taking that tool away from companies will at first cost them like it, 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 because people will have to figure out another tool and implementations will have to be redone. So there, there's like an economic cost involved. And yeah. like you said, I've, I'm definitely going to interview other tools, makers of other tools in this podcast as well, because I am also evaluating other options. But like you said, I think the, the flight forward. So for companies that are digitally more mature, I think the flight forward to something like Snowplow makes a lot of sense. Like, I think it has always been like the graduation step from a Google analytics implementation, perhaps for the more advanced mm -hmm. companies, yeah. but for a lot of companies that is really a step too far from the resources needed to maintain such an implementation. And then the comparable tools, I've always felt like they were a little bit a step back from Google yeah. Analytics. <clears throat> Hopefully I get proved wrong, but that's currently the way I perceive it. In your, in your own exploration, um, have you been looking at, so you've been looking at Snowplow because it's super interesting for you as a developer, of course, and the freedom it gives you. Have you been looking at also like de deploying it on, on an, on a different cloud provider, like an EU based cloud provider or, or solutions like that? Uh, no, no, I, I haven't. Um, but I don't also see any reason why you couldn't. I mean, there are some, um, of course it requires quite a bit of configuration when you go beyond on GCP and Azure and, and AWS, like the big ones. Um, but, but yeah, I'm, I'm you know, I'm, I'm kind of hoping that there would be some sense in these decisions, especially when it comes to the cloud, because it seems like it, it would be just economically unfeasible to compromise global cloud platforms based on Shrems 2, for example. I, ju I just don't, it just doesn't make any sense to me. It, it, I think it would be a, a very, very kind of EU intranetty kind of thing to do, which makes no sense uh, whatsoever. So I'm, I'm kind of hoping that we can continue to use um, cloud services that we're familiar with rather than having to jump to an EU only service that might not cater enough. Because Snowplow, for example, requires so many different components. It's, it's not just about a, a JavaScript library and then, a, then a, a database. There are so many steps in between, you know, there's enrichment, there's validation, there's, um, there's multiple different data flows you can start for real time and for daily batches. So it, it, you know, it, it might require anything, anything from five to 15 different cloud components running at the same time. And I just don't see how, how some, I, I, I don't have experience with EU only cloud server vendors, but I, I would assume that companies like AWS or Amazon and, and Google have an upper hand here. And there's a reason why people are flocking to those. So I'm, you know, um, it's. So maybe, maybe Snowplow then is, like you said, it's, it's only for a very mature audience, even though they do have, they've done a lot of work in building like these lightweight implementations and, and turnkey solutions. And I, I think that they are absolutely a viable solution for those as well. Um, 
And especially nowadays when people are more and more used to using tools like Data Studio and BigQuery and Tableau, rather than just relying on the analytics inter interface itself, it really doesn't matter what the data pipeline is built on because you end up having the same data in those reports anyway. So that gives us more maneuverability. Um, and I, I kind of wish that there would there just would be I, I have no interest in seeing GA as being the number one and the only one that people flock to. I don't think that's healthy. But it would be nice to have it as an option for those who are still looking for looking to kind of mature from one step to the next. Um, so it's it's yeah, we live in interesting times. I'm, I'm not that I'm I understand why many of Google's competition is now crawling out of the woodwork, coming out and saying that, hey, yeah, GA is illegal, but we're not, so just use us. It's a very kind of if you will, American way of advertising your wares is to demote others in favor of your own. And I've, for me, that's very off-putting. And I'm, I'm kind of happy to hear that Snowplow hasn't been very active in that front. But certainly other, other vendors have been extremely vocal in saying that, in kind of in not being able to market them on their own excellence, but rather on the demise of Google, which is always kind of pathetic to me. So, but I won't name any, any of these vendors' names here, but um, I think the game is still wide open as to what what companies will flock towards if push comes to shove and, and Google Analytics is, is quote unquote illegal. Yeah. I don't I don't know what that what that solution will look like. I see a huge business opportunity for a mm. EU first cloud provider to partner mm. up with Snowplow and, and yeah. then some nice package we can just install. Absolutely. Um so I want to thank you a lot for your talk. I think it's been great. Sure. So where can people find you? What should people do? After listening to this, uh, yeah. So I'm, well, I'm I'm active all over the place. But I think if you want, if you want, like, guaranteed to to uh, find me, then you know, Measure Slack is the number one place, and we'll add a, add a link to to that in the show notes. I think. So it's it's a it's a Slack community of I think we're almost twenty thousand people now, um, all focused around analytics and and data and, and marketing, and it's it's just a great place to be. And I'm I'm very active there because I I just love the community there and. Um, uh, other than that, I'm I'm probably most active on Twitter, and um, there's my blog, of course. And then, if you are interested in in server side tagging or or BigQuery or web browsers and tracking protections and stuff like that, then we have our TeamSimmer.com um, online course platform. Um, yeah, where highly recommended. I have I have followed all of them. It was very very much worth it. So. Highly recommended to uh, to follow those courses. Okay, then I want to thank you, Simo, and um, hopefully we'll talk soon.